It's time for Supply Chain Now. Broadcasting live from the supply chain capital of the country, Atlanta, Georgia. Heard around the world, Supply Chain Now spotlights the best in all things supply chain. The people, the technologies, the best practices, and the critical issues of the day. And now, here are your hosts. Hey, good afternoon. Scott Luton and Greg White here with you here on Supply Chain Now. Welcome to today's show. Greg, we've got another great installment of our Logistics with Purpose series, right? I love it when we do this. It's so fun to see what, pe- what kind of good people are doing around the world. Um, and of course, thanks to Enrique and the team at Vector for bringing it to us. All of these examples of giving forward. Absolutely. Yes, one of our favorite series, as, as Greg mentioned, Logistics with Purpose which is powered by our friends over at Vector Global Logistics. You can see we've got the whole game. We'll introduce everybody momentarily on this series. It's simple. We spotlight leaders and organizations that are on a noble mission to change the world in in some way, shape, or form. So stay tuned as we look to increase your supply chain IQ on a quick programming note. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to check out our podcast wherever you get your podcast from and subscribe so you don't miss a single thing. All right, so I want to welcome in first our esteemed and fearless co-hosts here today, Greg. We've already mentioned Greg White, the one and only serial supply chain tech entrepreneur and trusted advisor. Joining Greg and I is Enrique Alvarez, Managing Director at Vector Global Logistics. Enrique, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks, Scott, for having me, and thanks, Greg, as well. Monica, Jonathan, and Trudy, pleasure being here with you guys. Yeah, absolutely. it's great to see everybody. Uh, and joining Enrique is his colleague, Monica Rush, bu- uh, Business Development Associate, also at Vector. Monica, how are you doing? Hi, Scott. I'm doing great. Thanks for inviting me today. Definitely. Great to have you back. We really enjoyed uh, this uh, the, la- the first eight episodes of the, the, just the Logistics with Purpose series. And today is going to, I believe, continue a strong trend here. So with no further ado, let's welcome in uh, the other two individuals that, if you're watching the video version... Uh, in a studio here with us, uh, Trudy Hall, headmaster at the Abarso School of Science and Technology. Trudy, how you doing? Good morning. Actually, for me, it's still good morning. Uh, good to be here. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It is. It is morning where you are. Yeah. <laughs> and joining Trudy is uh, her colleague Jonathan Starr, founder of the Abarso School and CEO of the Abarso Network. Jonathan, how you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for uh, setting this up. We're looking forward to it. We are too. You know, we really enjoy diving into these stories uh, where, especially nonprofits, which have, have all, you know, figure out, find ways to serve those in need, you know, outside of the pandemic environment. And then they continue to, to, to figure, you know, find ways to serve during these challenging times. We've had some fascinating stories and looking forward to learning more about both of you. Um, before we dive into the Abarso School uh, and the Abarso Network, let's learn more about both uh, Trudy and Jonathan. So we got to ask, our, our gang likes to ask for starters, and, and Trudy, we'll start with you. You know, Tell us where you're from and give us an anecdote or two about your upbringing. I am from upstate New York, uh, what we call the North Country. Uh, this means far more north than Westchester. Everybody right. seems to assume that if you're from New York, that's where you are from. Um, but no, we're uh, way up in the Adirondacks, very small town. In fact, um, I went to a one-room schoolhouse. That's where my um, my education began. Um, and as we like to say in my family, um, 
it was just a great upbringing, a great way to be raised. We moved uh, by the time I was in sixth grade. We had moved eight times. Um, So I got used to moving around and uh, loved the fact that uh, what came with me every time I moved was a very large family. So I'm from a large family and a small town, and this is the way to raise children. I love that. Now, do you get a chance to get back? Do you still have a lot of family in the North Country? Uh, We have a lot of family right now in the Hudson Valley region. Um, And so a lot of them have moved down. We do have some in the North Country. Most are now in the Hudson Valley region. Good stuff. Well, hopefully as we get through these challenging times, you'll have a a chance to get back and see your your family in that area in person. Um, Jonathan, same question for you. you Tell us about where you're from. and, And just like Trudy, I love that, man, eight moves. Uh, and a large moving large family that in and of itself is a logistics feat. Why do uh, I just, imagine a covered wagon, one room schoolhouse, and a covered wagon? Right? Much older than I look. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it was maybe it was a covered station wagon. Oldsmobile, yeah. Um, Jonathan, tell us you know, where are you from, and and give us the same an, an anecdote or two about your upbringing. Sure, I grew up in Worcester, Massachusetts. Um, I'm uh, not not a massive family, and the first time that I moved in my life was to go to Emory University right in your neighborhood there, uh, which was a shocking experience, which maybe wouldn't have been so shocking had I moved six times in my first 11 years or so. Uh, my uh, Because we're going to eventually get into education, I'll give you an idea of that. I was, as an, I was probably a pretty odd child in some ways, just was interested in just whatever things I was interested in. But great student through elementary school and captain of my elementary school's academic Olympic team, which won the championship, and then uh, won the city of Worcester, then went to junior high and got completely destroyed in one, two years by one school. Uh, when people have asked me like, what was inspiring for Avarsa, the, the main thing has always been to do the opposite of what my junior high was for people. So I... Uh, um, <laughs> And eventually I recovered, but it took, it took some years to, to make up for that. But yeah. So, that's so tiny clearly, yep. yeah, clearly for you, Jonathan, education and, and yeah. knowledge and learning was really, it seems like it was really important to you early on. And, and, and I would guess it, given your venture sense, it remains a big priority for you, right? Sure. I mean, it's, I, the thing is when I was younger, I didn't even think of it. As education, I mean, I just was doing what seemed fun because it was. A, I went to a really good elementary school, and it just felt like learning. I watched my I have two little girls, and I watched them, and they just they don't look at school as this bad thing. They go to wonderful schools, so they look at it as an opportunity and, and something positive in their lives, not something to just try to get through every day. It's when that turn took that um, school went from something we look forward to to something that was work really work and that you really just didn't want to be part of i think we've i mean i shouldn't say we all but a lot of people have worked jobs that are both one that feels great and one that feels like i'm just trying to get through this and i just mm-hmm. and and doing the latter is not a good way to live and yeah. as a kid you have no choices so if that's the school you go to you're out of luck well put yeah well put look look yeah. forward to kind of learning more about that perspective you shared there based and, 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 you know, uh, comparing and contrast with what you're doing now to hopefully solve that for a lot of folks. So Monica, I know, I know you're curious about the professional journey that Trudy and Jonathan have, right? Yeah. Thank you, Scott. 
Uh, well, Trudy, I wanted to, to ask you, can you tell us about your professional journey prior to your current role? Like, how do you shape your worldview? Well, I'm, I'm going to give you the, the short version because I probably, um, I think I outdate a whole bunch of people on this phone call. And so I, I'm sure you want me to, I, I've, moved as I don't many so. times, I've moved as many times in my professional career as I have in my personal career. Let's just That was my first question, Trudy, wow. was could you have, have you changed jobs that many times? Yeah. I have changed jobs just about that many times. Um, I, I love, love, love a steep learning curve. Um, and so I find myself attracted to problems that need to be solved, challenges that I don't understand. Um, early on, um, I had a terrific mentor who was a school counselor, a school counselor. And I decided that's what I was going to be, a school counselor. That dream lasted for about six months. Um, and then after that, I happily, happily fell into the boarding school world. I am, did not attend a boarding school, did not even attend a private school, uh, but I fell into the boarding school world in Indiana and life began there for me. Um, I had those jobs that we look back at and we say, favorite time of my life, favorite time of my life. Um, and early on discovered that it was about administration for me. Um, I know some people call administration the dark side. <laughs> for, for me, um, what I loved about administration was the problem solving, that you saw that students needed the very kind of environment that uh, Jonathan had in his elementary school. And in administration, you could make that happen. Like you could make sure that it was student-centered. Uh, you could make sure that teachers had the resources, the equipment, the systems they needed to actually do their good work. Uh, so I actually worked in a number of schools from Indiana to Massachusetts uh, to New York to Savannah, Georgia, to Memphis, Tennessee, in each role um, as the senior administrator. I've run two boarding schools for a total of 20 years, and Jonathan found me um, as I was finishing up my, married to a military guy, as I was finishing up a tour of duty um, at uh, Emma Willard School, which is one of the oldest girls' schools in the United States and in mm -hmm. Troy, New York. We had just spent 17 years. I finally settled down and spent 17 years in one place when Jonathan tracked me down. Wow. Trudy, I get the sense that you love smashing obstacles that, you know, help others get past and, and to continue learning and continue serving. You love going there and smashing obstacles and getting away that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I think that means that sometimes people love to smash me, you know, but, it, but, it's, <laughs> but I just, I, I, for me, it's about kids. It's about kids. It's about the quality of their experience. It's about making sure that they feel as though they are in a place where they can do their very best learning. Um, and if there are things that are preventing that, it just hurts my heart. It yeah. really hurts. I appreciate you sharing it. Monica, I think we want the same. Curious about Jonathan's journey as well, right? Yes, please, Jonathan. Sure. Uh, well, growing up in Worcester, Massachusetts, I'd never heard of finance, but uh, at least I was like the guy who gives you a mortgage. Um, when I got to college at Emory, I started to get interested in that. And that is the, the route I ended up taking. I, uh, being in Atlanta, I was able to do some internships, even at a Southern Investment Bank, and get a little bit of experience there. And that's what I wanted to then do. And not, it's not that I didn't have other ideas in my head, but it was uh, an area to be challenged and use your intellect and really, um, really competitive. I like competition. So it, it seemed to be a good fit. Uh, I didn't find actually in it that I liked the day-to-day -day as much. I think that happens to a lot of people. A lot of people go into something like law because they like the concept. And then 
That's not necessarily what they're doing once they're actually there. Uh, nonetheless, I had a good, pretty good career for that time. And when I was 27, I got funded to launch my own firm, which I, in hindsight, was probably not ready for in any respect, but certainly not psychologically, emotionally. Uh, it was a high, pretty high pressure five or so years uh, that ended with me needing to just completely get out. And I, I, I closed it down when I was 32, and that's when I moved to Somaliland to start a Barso and to do something that people thought was crazy. But that's, that's you know, the journey that took me there. And I, I wanted to use some of the, uh, I built up some capital base, so at least I didn't, I, I could donate some money, and I also didn't need, I could take a number of years without making money, which was really, the, I think, the, the probably the most important donation I could make, is that I, I could know that I had, I had a lot of time to give to this where I wasn't going to have to actually uh, earn anything myself. And I tried to build an organization around that concept. If I'm not earning money, then you can come as a teacher and you can basically not earn any money. But you can't, I can't ask you to do that if I'm, if I'm making money. So um, I don't regret my time in finance. I still have friends from it. I still like it. I still watch things. I still find it intellectually interesting. Um, but I, I definitely at some point said it's time to take a, a different route in life. Uh, I know Greg's going to weigh in, and we're going to learn a lot more about the Barso School here momentarily. Real quick, one last question before we do transition over the over to that uh, segment, Jonathan. What what pulled you to Somaliland? What what was it part? What, what was it about that part of the globe that at 32 you said, you know what, that's where we're going. We're on a mission, and here we go. Yeah, the really short answer is I got duped. That's the really short answer. But uh, hey, whatever it, it takes. The slightly more expansive version <laughs> is that uh, I have a Somali uncle and who grew up in what was the British Somaliland and went to a British school uh, that was set up. It was this one very good school back in the 50s, early 60s. I ended up, uh, Somaliland got its independence from England. America started giving scholarships to Somalis who were top students like my uncle. He came to Boston University, married my aunt, had my cousins, and I, I grew up close with my uncle. So uh, he knew I was looking to do something different in life, and he just said, let's take a trip to my home country. So we went, and um, it's very easy in a short trip there to just think uh, very highly of Somaliland as being separate from Somalia. And it, it is. There's no question about it. You, you don't see what you saw on TV. You don't have bullets with. <laughs> it's not. Uh, you feel extremely safe. It just, mm. and you're excited about it. Now, I think at that time, Somaliland wasn't really ready to take off. But you can get easily fooled. Uh, now it is ready to take off. It really has been the last couple of years. There's a lot going on now. Uh, mm. But at that time, I just didn't understand that, and I didn't understand the biggest, the biggest miscalculation I made in the whole thing is I thought, well, I know that I mean well, and I'm coming here and I'm donating money and I'm opening something and I've recruited people and I know this is an improvement. So I assume you'll all be happy to have me here. And I did not understand at all that it does not work that way. So it was, uh, it was, it was quite an experience. But, but anyway, so when I say I, I got duped, I was naive. I wanted to be duped. I mean, it's all the case because I, um, I was excited about doing something that was going to just 
change my world and hopefully in the process positively impact some other people. But I, I think I probably wanted to see no evil. And just as a, as a uh, connected thought, it actually only occurred to me very recently that when people think about entrepreneurs or their social entrepreneurs or, or the more common business entrepreneurs, that are they have vision. They have this, and I do wonder how many of them are actually just kind of naively optimistic. And then we see the ones who made it nonetheless, <laughs> and we say, "Oh wow, that's such a, such a success." One kind of, you know, <laughs> they could have also fallen on their face. <laughs> and um, and I, I was certainly naive. I don't know if I was naively optimistic, but certainly naive. That's a, that's a really interesting take because, um, you know, I've started a company or two, and I was half bragging to my mother saying, oh, I'm a visionary. You know, I go see the way things ought to be. And uh, she said, I've known you your whole life. And I think you really ought to question whether you're a visionary or whether you're just discontent. And, <laughs> and I think the point yeah. is, as you said, Jonathan, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're naively optimistic or you're visionary discontent or whatever, that you went out and took that chance and that you, that you felt like giving is empowering, right? And, um, you know, look, I, all of us on this show have worked with, with charitable and philanthropic and, and association organizations that are nonprofits. And, um, you know, there's, there is a certain naivete that's required, I think. And frankly, there's a certain level of selfishness that's required. You said something that made me think you did this kind of for yourself, which is also okay. Because as everyone who has ever participated in philanthropy has ever said to me, you get out of it far more than you give. And yet so many people like you all give so much. So, so I'd like to kind of shift gears a little bit and, and tell us a little bit about the Barso School. So technically, right, the Barso School of Science and Technology, but tell us a little bit about what, you know, the, the school and then the network and the organization and how that operates. Jonathan, you're going to start on this one. You, you as the founder, as a founder. I guess we just found the, out who's in charge, Jonathan. Yeah, as a founder, <laughs> you get the privilege of starting. Um, okay, so I, I guess I, job, I guess I'm kicking it off. Um, so Avarsha School so was founded in 2009. I, I spent a year setting it up and then moved to the country with a handful of just uh, uh, other naive, optimistic people, uh, mostly Americans, and we, we started. And again, we, we didn't really know much of what we were going to get into, but we took a class of students, and um, we just figured it out. Uh, it's hard to describe it any different than that. I don't come from education other than having been educated. I tried to study it the best I could, I talked to experts. I tried to get a sense of things. Um, a lot of our faculty, some of them had taught before, some of them hadn't taught before. They were educated people themselves. And we figured it out. Now, I think to somebody like Trudy, uh, she'd look and say, oh, that's all wrong. And I think she'd generally be correct in many ways. However, there was one aspect we got completely right, and that was our school culture was one where we really convinced people that it was worth it to invest in their future. And that, I think, is 90% of what you're trying to accomplish. If you can get that done, 
then even if you're not perfectly using the right tactics, they get to where they need to get to. So as I mentioned, we had a lot of societal challenges, but come 2013, we had our first graduates and they got the first scholarships to American universities and was thought three decades. And that was a game changer in the wow. country. Nimmo got into Oberlin, Najib got into Georgetown, then this nomadic boy, who was literally a goat herder, got accepted to MIT. And it was just in the country, was just mind boggling. And people who had been, didn't just had heard all these negative things because there were a lot of intentional rumors spreading against us, um, can change. They just, they, they now saw something good for their children. And the way the Somali clans work, everyone has a nephew or niece at the school. I mean, it's just, that's, that's how it works. So everyone's related to pretty much everyone. So everyone can say, oh, yeah, my niece is at you know, Yale or wherever. Uh, and from there, it, it just grew. So the, um, the, the support in the country, not to say we don't still have a group who don't like us for their own benefit, but the support in the country continued to just grow from there. And we expanded on what we could do. Eventually, we got American accreditation. We're the 11th school in all of Sub-Saharan Africa to be accredited by the New England Association of Schools and Colleges. Wow. And eventually, we even could convince real people like Trudy to come in and and develop the rest of uh, what we hadn't done right over all those years. So picking up from there, um, what, what Jonathan and my predecessors handed over was this remarkable place that had grown to 272 students. It's a boarding school, um, and that's unusual in Somaliland as well. Um, in addition to that, what Jonathan has managed to do with his team was to create a situation where families felt comfortable sending their girls to a boarding school, which was big. And so the um, challenge over the years has been to ensure or at least aim for a 50-50 ratio between boys and girls. So it's a pretty distinctive school in, in that respect. Uh, many elements of it stand out in the culture of Somaliland. Uh, most specifically is the idea that if you come to Abarso, you're on a university track and you know that you're going to be leaving somewhere and going to school beyond Abarso. Early on, uh, the school smartly realized that cranking engines and filling gaps for three years wasn't going to get these kids where they needed to ultimately go. So Jonathan and his team added a seventh and an eighth grade. So now we have a bit of a runway that we can work with. Um, for us, it's been remarkable to see where these students go with their lives. The vision has always been that they are raised as educators and they are to come back and give back to their country, that Somaliland needs this educated generation. And everybody I've talked to said, yeah, but I bet that isn't happening. I bet they're not coming back. I bet they get to all these universities and they don't come back. It's like, no, not only does the school have a remarkable track record for success in supporting these students once they get to their universities, so their graduation is a very high percentage, but they're coming back. Wow. So at Barso now, we have several of the alums who work with us. There are several alums who work in the Abarso network operations that Jonathan, I'm sure, will explain over in um, Somaliland. And in addition, the government is our partner. I mean, I, every time we turn around, there's some way in which they are supporting 
our efforts. Um, I think Jonathan will know more of the details on this one than I do, but we just had a very successful virtual graduation for um, about 20 of our students who graduated from college this year, places as diverse as Yale and Columbia and Brown and um, Berea uh, and Grinnell and all over the place. And to that, as speakers came, the president, the minister of education, uh, a variety of different kinds of notables in Somali culture who chose to show up on that particular um, virtual graduation to cheer on this young group who has done the impossible in Somaliland. They have completed a a four-year college education and are on their way to some amazing things. So Jonathan Trudy alluded to some other aspects of the school. I have to say, just my opinion, sounds like you picked a really, really good leader for the, for the school. But can you share a little bit about uh, you know some of the other aspects of the, of the school itself? Well, so we... Um, so... We can take a little business turn for a second. So, because I, I still do think it, this is nonprofit. I've never accepted a dollar from the school. I so donated, not the other way. But I still think you have to think of your organization as a business that provides a service and needs to needs to successfully do that at a at a competitive price. That, uh, and I think if you don't, you see a lot of problems happen. And in this especially in the education world, international education world, I think in the COVID world, we're going to see some, some places are going to suffer from this. So we, from the beginning, tried to keep the cost down. We tried to um, make sure that, I mean, I do believe we're the greatest bang for the buck in history. I mean, our, our MIT, the, the nomad I was talking about before, he spent three years with us, one year at a private school, his junior year at a private school in America, fully funded by that private school. The three years with us were $5,400. So for $5,400, a kid who had been a nomad ended up joining knowledge of a private school career, but to MIT for four years, where he graduated with a computer science electrical engineering degree and is now working for the big Dubai port operation doing electrical services in the port of, of Berbera, which is the big Somaliland port. But that's a good, that's a good investment. Um, so continuing the business line, people, would reach out and say, oh, so the obvious next step is so now you're going to build a school in uh, Sudan. Now you're going to build one in the Central African Republic or name your place. So that doesn't actually make sense. You know, what, when Walmart had its first successful store in, in Arkansas, they didn't say, like, well, let's go to London. You know, that, no, you go to the next village over where you still have a brand, where you still have, where you have know-how, where you have logistics that work. But we have right. great expertise in the country. We also have nearly 40 students applying for every spot we have at our which, as true, said, this is seventh grade boarding. How many people want to send their 12-year-old to go to boarding school anywhere in the world? And so uh, instead of us doing, you know, deciding that, oh, we need to keep stamping out the exact same thing, which didn't make sense, and also in itself is not scalable because we need these foreign scholarships for these students, they can't go to the local university. And I don't care if we're perfect. You cannot get 200 kids who need full scholarships from one country, those scholarships. That does not exist. Not, not annually. I mean, you can't. 40, 50, that is a lot to try to get. But right. above that is going to be virtually impossible. So instead, what we did 
in 2017, we had the pieces that we could make this work. We launched a women's university, which was a teacher's college to start. That's what it still is. Uh, we had our former assistant head of our service woman, Ava Ramberg, who was fantastic, who came to, to launch it on the ground. Um, and we had a lot of siblings of the Abarso students, but we basically took the females who wanted to get to Abarso, but were older at this point, because they come from the other schools, not from Abarso, and we took them on that track. And we call this one Barwaco. And Barwaco is actually fertile, plentiful, um, successful. So Barwaco is producing a whole cohort of highly educated teachers. And with that, we can do a vast expansion throughout the country. So the plan is that because we'll have that. Now, they're not immediately going to be able to teach at Abarso where we get these really highly educated people who are from a different class, really, of, of education that we can't fix in four years at Barwaco. But we've started the first of these K through 12 schools, these day schools now, Montessori style, Montessori inspired. We're not married to Montessori, but the good method in general. Mm -hmm. um, we started the first, and our plan is to add two a year starting next year and be rolling these schools out all over the country. And when these schools come through, and Trudy's seen the, the first one, which is just the kindergarten at this point, when those kids come through, I mean, that, they're going to give a Barca students a serious run for their money because they're. Uh, I mean, we'll just have all these years head start on them. Uh, you would you would send your own kids to that school without any question. I mean, they're, wow. they're, it's really, really high quality. So the idea is we now have the human capital who are Somalis to do this massive expansion throughout the country. We couldn't expand without that. So we can play, we can benefit from the Abarso brand, our know-how, everything. We're just taking it and actually using it in a place that we can use that. If we went to the Central African Republic, they have no idea who we are. We'd yeah. be starting everything from scratch. We would yeah. not have the president on a call with our graduates to congratulate them. That yeah. would well, in fact, in a really small world, proof positive of what Jonathan's talking about, the individual who helped with all of the um, engineering, design, what have you, of both Barocco and as Kabe was a gentleman that Jonathan hired to actually come be an English teacher at Abarso. Uh, he stayed, fell in love with it, and turns out to be trained as an architect and actually has done remarkable work in terms of creating two structures that are you know, designed for the very people who will use them. Uh, and they are remarkable. And uh, I think even just the facilities that we've got in Baraco and Kabe demonstrate the quality of what Jonathan's talking about bringing to the country. Hey, well, if I can ask a quick question. Yeah. Um, uh, Trudy, I heard when you came on, there was about 272 students, and clearly the program has expanded. And there's a lot of interest in each of those slots. Can, can you give us a sense of, of just how large the program, even including the, the, the women's program that was stood up in 2017, how large has it grown to now? Well, we are still growing out the women's college. So we are still at 272 in our school. We are full up. We can only take 272. That's uh, We take okay. about 50 per class. Uh, we are lucky in that a number of our uh, juniors will go on, our sophomores will go on and will go to private schools in the U.S. as a way of getting further enrichment and advancement so they can be ready for a university setting. Right. Uh, but then there are now about 100, uh, 100 kids at uh, Baraco, and we've got our first class at Kabe, the very first Montessori school in Somaliland, uh, 25, I think, are in that class. They were got up to, I think, about 40 before, 40, the, 40. before the, the plan was to keep 
integrating kids and get the classroom right and keep integrating kids into the classroom to make sure it's right, make sure the culture is right, which was right. It was beautiful. It was fantastic. I, over the course of the year, hoping to end each about 50 to 60, but then COVID hit and they stopped taking in new, new students at that point. There's but, something pretty important about the um, program um, that Jonathan started and the kids have really picked it up. Um, and I, I bet you'd say this about Kabe and Barako too. They consider a bar so family and they use that word. Um, and I think that comes from the decisions that Jonathan made early on. So for example, when you graduate from a bar, so you might not be ready for college just yet. Hmm. You might need perhaps a little more English, or maybe you're going to um, a school somewhere in Africa and it doesn't open up until a January slot. Um, so the school has done a terrific job, I think, of creating PG programs. Um, creating slots for these folks to do some good work for a Barso and get professional experience. Um, they've done a wonderful job in the U.S. making sure that they um, have the care they need when they come to the U.S. And it is considered a, a family in the best sense of the word. And I think that's an element of it that I think, Jonathan, you would take pride in. I know the kids take pride in as well at the school. Sure. I mean, ultimately, the only way that they can this isn't a bunch of individuals. These are a bunch of people who have a connection. And that's why you could see them working together to solve problems that you would think when you spend time, you say that that's a really hard to solve problem in the country. Mm. How are you going to have enough will to do that? Political will, will of the people to do that. Uh, it's going to help if a bunch of people are working together. And even some of the their movements going on in the country as we speak, and we'll see. It's going to be a test of our alumni to see how they how they respond. There's some actually women's uh, empowerment issues going on right now uh, that in my time in the country since 2008, I've never seen this before. And a number of our alumni are stepping up and saying, "We're not going to be silent about this, and let's let's see what happens." This is the first test number one for them. But if they were a bunch of separate individuals. It wouldn't be possible. They need to. They need to have that that cohesive network for it. Yeah, for, and for I think um, just out of my experience, like some of the kids that I have, I've been where I had the pleasure of meeting uh, Gulaid. Uh, I probably didn't pronounce his name right, but he made okay. like a really good video. He's uh, apparently he kind of liked uh, putting videos together and and. Uh, it was part of the media club, I believe. And so some of the programs that you guys are talking about, Trudy and Jonathan, I think there's a really good opportunity here for companies like ours to kind of engage with the students and ask them to do things for us, which at Vector we have. But I think just uh, for everyone else that is listening to this podcast, they have really good students. So if you have any kind of like technical job that you need to do or like some kind of projects, in my particular case and in Vector's case, it was just... Um, it was uh, formatting and and just going editing some of the videos and they did an amazing job and so uh, there's probably good opportunities out there for them uh, and and I think now that this pandemic hit everyone I think technologies like that that allow us to work remotely with other people uh, make it even more viable and easier to do so uh, I wouldn't be surprised if some of these schools uh, if schools and in particular yours and some of these students start getting summer jobs or virtual summer jobs in the U.S. because they're really, really good students. And that's something we'd like, they would like and we would like. Certainly. Yeah, effectively an internship. Uh, I mean, mm -hmm. 
Is there a formal program for something like that, Jonathan? Or there is. Can Absolutely. folks just reach out to you all and they, they can, and then we can connect. We have some people who lead that, and we can connect them to, to there. We're, yeah. So we that's it's been a focus area to try to see if they if we can help connect students with opportunities. Um, they then need to perform, and that's on them. But we we're trying to to do that. We're trying to connect them. Sure. The best we can. Yeah, well, that's that's fantastic. I can tell you that I think a lot of co- companies, except for the big corporate ones, they're intimidated by internships. But having had a few small companies, let me assure you, it's as simple as finding a young person you want to work with and having them coordinate with their school to make it happen so that they get credit if it's a credit mm-hmm. type thing. Literally for the for the employer, you have to do nothing but employ and train, right? And share knowledge with with the student. So I would encourage companies out there to get engaged. It is just, it's so easy. It's so rewarding. I mean, we have two interns now and we learn as much from them, like Enrique talked about, as they do from us. Totally different things, but it's a great perspective. So, all right. So I know, I know, Jonathan, I, I, I would love to understand what you first and then Trudy, you, I understand. I think we understand your titles, headmaster and then CEO, but also um, a little bit, Jonathan, of what you do on a day-to-day basis, because it sounds like it's a lot. And I, just, and yeah. I know Trudy's job is probably in transition because I sense that Trudy's life is transition and she really thrives on that. So I can't wait to hear about that too. Yeah, my my job has changed over the years. I, mean, I, I used to be on the ground running things and was also the person who needed to drive around all of America trying to see if we could get schools to take our students. So uh, that was uh, on a full scholarship because otherwise it was useless. Um, <laughs> that's what my, oh, and I used to try to also be the fundraiser. Um, so that's what it was. It's transitioned. And I think people who are used to me doing that much work now actually also wonder, what exactly does he do anymore? Um, sometimes I wonder also. But there are, so I lead the foundation, the U.S.-based foundation. So there is, at this point, there's fundraising to be done. Um, we're tr- we run very, very efficiently. And we have a great brand in the Somali world. And you would see some students say, well, how, how can a student possibly pay tuition? And they can because of our reputation in the Somali world and the clan system and everything. There's getting money from relatives abroad, and we have no visibility into how it happens. But it does happen. It's pretty remarkable. Uh, you couldn't go to their house and say, oh, no, no, you clearly can't pay. Or you can't pay because that's just not how it's often being paid. It's coming from, from just relatives. Um, so... Um, but nonetheless, you know, we're trying to build two new schools a year of the new Montessori inspired schools. That's not, we do it extremely efficiently, but it's not free. That's right. That's going to be about $450,000 a school to put them in place. And these are beautiful schools and put the K through five component in place, I should say. Uh, now that depending on how it sounds is either remarkable. How can you possibly do a school for $450,000? I mean, my but my daughter's case through three schools being replaced right now for 40 million after the state uh, refund. Yeah, I was thinking 450 seems like a bargain. 
Yeah. Right. Nonetheless, if you don't have the 450, you can't do it. Right. So, we, so we need to get that. And it's a little, there are challenges. This isn't asking somebody to give to the private school where their kid goes to that they see and know everything. You're talking about the other side of the world. There are people who say, well, what, I mean, that's just not my interest. I want to give domestically. It's, it's more challenging than you may think, but that's, that's a big job. We try to do that. Um, there's also just moving pieces as we're trying to keep the larger network all moving forward. We have positions to fill. We have, um, there's just, there's a lot, a lot going on and strategically how it's going to position as well. So, um, I end up doing a lot of this and then there's, I somehow just still seem to be a lot of the alumni, if they're having a problem with this or that, I, I seem to be who's reached out to. Um, quite often. So there, there's a lot of that. And that's fine. I mean, I, I, I like them a lot. They're still they're many of my favorite people. So it's not, a, I'm not complaining, but it does somehow take up all my time. I'm going to sound like one of your uncles for just a second here, Jonathan. Do you have a quote unquote day job or is this all that you do? No, th this is what I do. And okay. this has been what I've done since 2008. I mean, the only exception is I wrote a book about it. Um, but I took about four months to do that. So it wasn't, uh, I guess my publisher would be annoyed if I don't, it probably takes the school for those people listening. Um, and the handful of people have read it think it's really good. <laughs> um, Trudy liked it and it helped get her to Somaliland. That's but high now, marks in my book. <laughs> other than that, um, no, I have not done any other job, any other role. This is what I do. Uh, and this is what I've done since whatever it's been 2008. Yeah. Wow. All right, Trudy, um, tell us, tell us a little bit about your day to day. I can't even imagine, but. Yeah. So I, I do what nobody else will do and all of it and all the time. Um, and you plan your day and then you trash it and start all over again. What is so fabulous about this place is you don't know how you're going to spend your day until it meets you. Um, and so you, you have to be, and it gets you, it takes you a while to get used to that. But what you have is a game plan of what you might like to accomplish during the day. And then, as our assistant headmaster says, and then this happened. Um, and so, for example, uh, more recently, uh, we might be sitting over um, uh, in the science lab uh, talking about the solar panels for some reason. And somebody says, the baboons have gotten over the fence again. You know, the electrical fence is no longer working. We have to deal with it. And that sidetracks you just for a small moment. Um, because at the very same time, you know, some young woman um, potentially uh, needs you because she's had an emotional breakdown and something has gone on and she can't find her parents, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it's one thing after another. And what the difference for me was I came from a school that was a seasoned, well-functioning, uh, well-resourced school, and I was busy there. I was absolutely busy. But I didn't touch things. And the, the difference is that in this particular school, there's no way you can run it without touching things. Now, some of the things you wish you wouldn't have to touch, but on the other hand, you're touching things. So you're, you know, you really have your, your hands on some pretty interesting cultural challenges. Some, uh, we were, for example, we're really working a lot with the students on teaching them um, design thinking and how to solve problems in design thinking. Wow. And so that process of um, how you take on the school's issues and change mindsets 
is something that we do with the juniors and the seniors. So we've created a, uh, a whole curriculum that runs seven through 12. And in each of those levels, they're having to do practical um, sort of uh, energy projects, really, if you will, about how you implement what they have learned about. So the school does a lot of uh, project design. Uh, the school does a lot of teaching toward competencies. Um, so yes, it's excellence, but it's also what can you do? Um, and so for us, the huge piece of that is we're training the faculty to do it. So at most schools, you hire people who already know how to do it. Right. At a Barso, we train you how to do it. And that's our gift to you. Teaching so twice, I, basically. Yeah. Yep. Um, and then, uh, so then what Jonathan ensured in the very beginning of it is a school that's oriented to a community service. So our students are teachers as well because they are either teaching younger students or they are teaching the village children or they are teaching the orphanage children. So everybody is a teacher and everybody is a learner. And you can intersect with that energy any way you want all day long. Um, and so what I was fascinating though, and I, I haven't really had a chance to explain this to folks in a way that, um, uh, since I've come back, uh, from, you know, the, the taking the short break from COVID and the COVID virus is that for me, what's fascinating is the pace is actually slower hmm. than it is in the U S because the issues are real. You can focus on them. You can address them. You can parse them. And I think what goes on here, as I talk to so many of my head of school colleagues in the U.S., uh, the issues are so big and so complicated, and you're so far away from them that you don't have the feeling that you have the immediate impact that I feel like I've got, that I know my faculty feel like they have on a daily basis over at this pretty amazing school with these children who call you by your first name. So there's no formality, you know, uh, which is great. It's just very leveling. It's very humbling uh, to be at the school. Wow. That's fantastic. Enrique, look, we love asking you this question. I don't know your answer, but I know if you asked me, if you asked me to answer this question, I could give you mine, but let's, let's not hear mine. I want to understand you, you connected us with Jonathan and with Trudy. I always love to understand what you and Monica admire so much about the Barso, but share that with us. Tell us, you know, a little bit about how you work together and, you know, and, and uh, how you came to, to, you know, work with this group. Yeah, our connection is uh, through logistics. We shipped some of their containers uh, a while back when we, with Sandy Hirschberg, which I believe you both met, uh, and Jonathan worked very closely with. Um, she was great. She built a really good relationship, and she always talked about, like, how great their cause was, right? I mean, I don't think the school wasn't important, the students wasn't important, but just the cost. She was really, really excited and, and motivated by the, by the cost. And, uh, and so we started kind of like working together and we got the chance to, to work with, together uh, on some of their shipping. And then uh, the relationship just grew from there. And uh, for me personally, I think uh, one of the biggest challenges and easy to solve challenges this world has is just education. If we were to put just mon a lot more money, effort, commitment, and care towards education, we wouldn't see all these other problems that we're facing. And, and right now, it's a good year to kind of like highlight that because uh, education would resolve all this. And so what they're doing is uplifting and, and just great. So every time that I had the opportunity to talk to Monica, who's the one in charge of 
working closer together uh, with Trudy and Jonathan. It's just, it's just great. And and now we're sponsoring. I'll let Monica talk a little bit more about this because I think uh, she she knows not, not only knows a lot more, but she's a lot closer to the to the organization. And and but I just answering your question. I just love the fact that they care, and and there's not as many people that care anymore. It feels like I know that's that's not true, but it just feels that like that sometimes. So they're always uh, they're always there. So. Moni, what, Monica, what do you, you think? Wanna, yeah, how, how yeah. would you answer that question? What do you admire the most about the school? And if you want to talk a little bit more about our student, um, that would be great. Thanks, Enrique. Well, um, when Sandy introduced me to Jonathan and she talked me about what you do and then we started working closely, it was great because we had the opportunity to help donations from the U.S. Uh, to arrive to the school in Somaliland. And that was awesome for me. And then I met Trudy uh, when she was like in the transition to, to become the headmaster of the school. And I remember that the first time that I talked with you over the phone, it was like, wow, this woman is, she's great. She, she's been doing a lot of good things all around the world. And now she's going to Somaliland to help these kids. And I just really enjoyed like, working with you guys. And then we got the opportunity to sponsor a girl so she could go to, to a Barca school and her name is Mumtaz. But we just we just didn't want to only send money for her education. We wanted to be able to meet her and to be close to her. So Trudy helped me to arrange a Skype meeting with Mumtaz. And she was 12 year, years old. I think maybe right now she's 13. She was great. She was learning English. She was a little shy, but her smile was like, wow. And she was like, hey, Moni, thanks, thanks to Vector for, for the scholarship. I love mathematics class, and I want to be a doctor someday. And that moment just really touched our team because it was great to see the impact that we can do when we really care, when you need the right people, when you when you want to change something like doing good. So congratulations guys. And I'm, I'm really glad to still work with you and to have you here today. It's an honor. Outstanding. Uh, we're in, in the whole series dedicated to the Abarso school. It sounds like it's too much to get into that. We're not gonna be able to do it justice here today. Um, but I like how, you know, pre-show Jonathan was talking about how from a logistics standpoint, they're more about, in the, the logistics of moving people and, and uh, educating people and furthering opportunities for people. And I love that because people are still so incredibly important, not just to the global business world, but, but certainly the global supply chain, despite all the gains of technology, you know, into all those spaces, still it takes people. And I love, uh, I love what we're hearing here of, of great people investing into people that may not have had those opportunities earlier. So why am I not surprised that Enrique and Moni and, and the folks over at Vector Global are not somewhere involved in this story? So Enrique, with that said, I know you're curious as we kind of broaden the conversation up a little bit, right? Yes. Well, um, it, again, it's, it's been a challenging year for many, many different reasons. And of course, I just wanted to hear uh, your take, Jonathan and, and Trudy, on, on how you're handling all this, right? Because you have the, the pandemic and you have all this 
different uh, racial conflicts and you have like the supply chain uh, problems that you have. And, and before diving a little bit more into how you're handling this on a day-to-day basis, just maybe a quick update on how Somalia and Somaliland are doing with the pandemic. Because I, uh, and, and if there's something we could do to help out, is there, uh, what, what is the need and what is the situation right now so that people that are listening to us or, or watching this live could uh, could potentially help out in this particular um, crazy times. See, Jonathan, I was going to say that we actually feel safer in Somaliland than we do in the U.S. right now. I probably shouldn't say that too loudly. Um, I'm not Somaliland, surprised. <laughs> Somaliland <laughs> has managed this uh, quite well. Uh, Somaliland shut things down fast, and they shut them down across the country. So they closed borders. Uh, in fact, uh, since late March, uh, no North Americans or Europeans have been able to fly into the country. Um, land borders are closed. Uh, schools were shut down all across the country March 19th. So all of us went into a mode of trying to create and keep the schools going, which we have. Uh, all, all three schools have been going uh, since March 19th. Um, and then um, our faculty actually was able to stay there and continue to work for a good long time on a variety of different professional development projects and projects to actually make sure the school, when we come back, comes back even stronger. But Somaliland itself, the cases um, are being discovered through testing. Uh, There's not significant and widespread testing. However, the level of deaths are quite low. Uh, We, I think, are still well within, we're under 50 deaths still in the country. Um, we have contacts, and Jonathan knows more about these contacts, um, in a variety of different locations in Somaliland. We keep pulse points on those contacts, but we're not seeing it ravage the country yet. Yeah, the, there's a mystery that I don't think anyone has the answer to across Africa, which is why COVID doesn't seem to be doing the damage people thought it would, at least not yet. Um, and uh, I, I, I've heard a bunch of explanations, but I haven't heard an answer. I don't think anyone really knows. Um, the fear, and you can understand this, that the, the quality of the healthcare system in, across Africa is generally not good. Mm-hmm. Somaliland would be the first to admit the quality of their healthcare system is not good, even as compares to, compared to a lot of other African countries. Had this become this huge healthcare crisis, the system is immediately overwhelmed. I mean, it's overwhelmed from the beginning. So, uh, but that doesn't seem to have happened, and people aren't sure why. Mm-hmm. And we keep uh, this. Actually, earlier today, Trudy and I were on a call with an organization that donates to uh, schools throughout Africa, and they were saying the same. They, the same thing we keep hearing again and again, which is. For the most part, it's not just the cases aren't being reported, it's that people just don't seem to be getting that sick. Mm-hmm. So let's just hope it stays this way, uh, because the fears were correct that if it gets bad, if the sick, if sickness gets out there, really, it's going to be hard to deal with this. But, um, but luckily, that hasn't happened yet. So. How are, uh, Jonathan, how are the students kind of coping with the whole thing? And um, what are, how are they feeling? Just being, I mean, I can speak for my kids they have two kids 12 and 10 and they're just they're just desperate to go out and meet with their friends and they my youngest daughter i mean the other day was crying because she wanted to go back to school and i'm like well i'm gonna record this words because (laughs) (laughs) 
that was not the case a couple of months ago. But so how <laughs> how are the how are the students kind of coping with all this kind of being locked down and they're yeah, not I know really the better. Down. Sorry, go yeah, ahead. I, was gonna say that I think our students are not really as locked down. We talk with them and we talk with them a lot. Uh, we're finding that, uh, yes, uh, masks can be worn, but they're not wearing them. Uh, we're forever finding them in other people's homes. Like they, this, this morning, I did an interview with one of our students for an internship and he was at a friend's house using a friend's phone. Um, so I think they're, they're very casual with uh, how they are managing the situation because it just doesn't seem prevalent over there to them. Now, what we have been able to do is we can track their progress uh, through Google Classroom and uh, whether or not they're opening our YouTube channel. So we tracked we track all of their email addresses um, and all of their computers. And so we can tell when they, I don't think they trust us and believe this, but they're going to be sorry if they don't. Uh, we know exactly who's, who's checked in and who's done the homework and how frequently they've checked in. So we've been keeping that data. I think that um, our students would say the same thing your kids are saying. They want to go back to school. They really, really want to go back to school. They miss their friends. They miss studying. They just want to go back to school. Yeah. And I'm a little more in touch with the alumni, and I'd say, so if you take the alumni in America, it's, it's, uh, it's tough. Not only are they locked down somewhere, they're locked down often in other people's houses. So, mm-hmm. And that is just, you know, as I said, Somalis have relatives all over, but nonetheless, that doesn't mean that you feel great about spending five months at somebody's house that you don't know that well. So it's, uh, I think it's, it's, it's challenging. It's also, for those who love their learning, this is not a school who on two weeks notice has to switch completely to being an online environment, generally speaking, is not going to do it as well as they would have had it. And I think it's been disappointing for some students that it doesn't feel like what they wanted. I mean, that's not specific to our students. That's, that's I mean, just true across the board. People, this is not college as people think of college yeah. right now. So. Yeah. Um, I think I think the one thing yeah. I was going to say, Jonathan, the one thing that I think we see coming at us that I think will finally enable our kids to realize how global this is. Our students have not been able. We have a bumper crop of students who were accepted to um, schools and colleges in the U.S. and they haven't been able to get their visas because the embassies are shut down in Djibouti, which is where we go. And I think I think everybody now is holding their breath hoping that these young men and women will be able to get to pursue the opportunity that they've fought so hard to achieve. Yeah. Which, realistically speaking, probably is not happening during the first term. And yeah. not that the visas, I just think the colleges themselves are going to just have a, basically say, if you're international, stay international for the first term. And I, we don't know exactly, but that's certainly the, it's a lot of the tense we're getting. So when you, when you talk about logistics and all the moving of people, we have multiple problems. We need to move our students who are accepted to programs globally, not just in America. They need to get there. And then at the same time, you also need to get a whole crop of teachers, faculty who come from around the globe to us. Mm-hmm. And uh, the only thing to say positively about that, I mean, this was one positive or a couple positives that come out of this period, it's that almost every other program shut down. So we have we have quite the group of faculty coming in next year. We just need to be able to get them there. It's just Fulbright closed, Peace Corps closed, everything closed, and we have a job. So, so you know, right now, a job is very attractive to people. Yeah. Well, I, I think 
I think it will be, it's an interesting no, new normal. What else can you call it that we're entering into where I have, I have a, a daughter going to college as a freshman this fall and we're making the decision whether she ought to even live in a dorm yeah. there, or oh. whether that she'll even be obligated as many of them are. And I wonder even without a visa, if they might not be able to, I don't know, that's not practical really, but there, you know, there's, there's remote learning from so many universities yeah. now. So I wonder how that could happen. So I think that's going to be what it is. I think they're going yeah. to, they're going to have to give you the option because some people just won't be able to come. So yeah, that's right. To, that's right. And we're also going to face an issue and this comes down to funding again in life. We will face an issue next year, I do believe, where it's going to be much harder for students to get scholarships because yes. a lot of universities and boarding schools we send students to are financially hurting. Now, we tend to send to the very rich elite, which is not because we're elitists, but because that's who has money. Right. <laughs> so that's who gives it. And the reality is that whether it's Yale or Columbia or Williams or whoever, this, yes, it financially hurts, but they can, you know, this, this is still drops in the bucket. And it really, if they claim otherwise, it's just not true. Um, they can survive this easily and not have changed the thing. But will they? Or will they say, oh, well, the endowment will take a hit and we don't want to have that happen. So we're going to cut financial aid. And uh, we don't know the answer, but I think it's going to be the hardest year yet to place students in scholarship opportunities. There are some other economics at play too, and some some educational experts have speculated that a lot of the lower tier schools are just going to go away. They're mm -hmm. over their head, which is going to make it more competitive for schools at the first and second tier. So, yeah, and for students trying to get scholarships at those, so that could have a long term effect as well. So, um. Uh, amazing story what you're doing I really appreciate and we applaud what you all are doing and how you how you and vector are working together I didn't even know Enrique is so humble I didn't even know that that they were actually sponsoring a, a student so that's really cool um, so le let's make sure that our listeners can get in touch with you so you are at abarsoschool.org and that's a b double a r s o school.org right yeah. How else can they get a hold of you, Jonathan and Trudy? That's probably the best way, um, but it's because um, there's a contact us through that. You can also, abarsonetwork.org also works if you want to do that, but Abarso School, we, we, we see it all. Um, yeah. And uh, beyond that, you can take our first letter, our last name at abarsoschool.org and just email us directly. So it's T Hall or J Star at abarsoschool.org. And get to us that way. Uh, we love people who want to help out or even just say something nice. That's good too. Uh, but uh, yeah, anybody is interested, even if you, there's so many ways to be involved and to help. Uh, students need host families, as I think Enrique was saying, job opportunities, internship opportunities are a great way to help. We love more people who want to say, I want to, I want to contribute towards the student's education and um, th that's another great way to help. Someone wants to pay for a whole new K through five. That's even better. <laughs> you got um, 450 grand laying around. Give John a call. 450 grand laying. You know what? Even if you have a hundred, we'll make, we'll that's find, right. we'll we'll find the rest. <laughs> um, but, 
Yes, anybody who, if somebody wants to be involved, the, the other areas people can think about is uh, they may have a relative who is in education is really looking for something different and wants a great experience. And, and I do think we can provide that. We are a great experience, especially for someone who just fully commits to it. Well, if, if they get to work for Trudy, I have a feeling you're going to get a lot of contacts. So they do. Trudy, how, if somebody does want to work with you or, you know, however they might, op, you know, work, work with your schools, how can they best get in touch with you? Um, I will give you a best kept secret, but promise not to tell anybody. No, there not a, at all. Only about 20,000 people. <laughs> there's an email account. I-N-F-O stands for info. Info at abarsoschool.org. Um, and guess who reads those? informations i get them all i'm while you're getting the baboons back over the fence you're reading reading i am i am your director of social media so yeah so (laughs) so so that will come directly to me outstanding yep all right well um so enrique let's let's close with you and moni and tell us a little bit about um what you all are doing i know you're working with some folks on ppe you and i have had a couple of communications on companies that have initiatives and or in that area, right? So tell us a little bit about how you're participating in the yes, no, well, voting fight against you know, and, and also working with these folks. Yes, no, um, first, uh, just let me thank Trudy and Jonathan. Always a pleasure, guys. It is great to put like some uh, faces to all those emails and phone calls. So thanks for what you're doing. We really admire what you do and you kind of like make our jobs more meaningful. Because uh, and that's that's huge for me and my team. So thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, in terms of what we're doing with the pandemic, we launched a task force to try to minimize the cost of sourcing and shipping PPE products. Our goal again is just to help people that actually don't have those uh, uh, products handy. Um, and so we've partnered with Love Beyond Walls, which is an organization here in Atlanta that supports homeless and homeless people, and they're trying to help them because the two things that when this whole thing started, they told us as well, stay home and wash your hands, right? And you're like, well, mm-hmm. homeless don't have any of those two things. So, uh, so um, Terrence has done an amazing job kind of like pushing the washing your hands front. And what we're trying to do is just donate 100,000 uh, masks for homeless people. And so we're kind of like not only helping raise the money to bring them, but then also sourcing them. And we have already delivered, I believe it's uh, about a thousand. So, uh, that's one thing that we're doing. The other is just trying to connect um, PPE to schools and um, nursing homes and just uh, first responders. So we launched with a Sularc, uh, a webpage that will allow people to go online and instead of just buying products for you, uh, it will allow you to go and donate products to someone else that you might know. So you'll go online and it will be like, well, what do you want? Do you want uh masks or thermometers or whatever who do you want to send this to and you can pay it and so it'll be a slightly different from what you could probably find right now which is i want to buy products here as well i want to donate to someone else and so that thing uh that web page is coming up maybe in a week or so i'll let you guys know when it's up and running yeah. but uh but those are the two we'll main put it things in the show notes yeah right. that would be great so those are two things fantastic awesome man thank well, you yeah definitely want to uh echo Enrique's comments. I uh, really appreciate what Jonathan Starr and Trudy Hall are doing with the Abarsa School of Science and Technology, and of course the Greater Abarsa Network. 
Um, it's certainly a noble mission. You're, you're changing a lot of people's lives. And as Jonathan alluded, as you both alluded to, that these folks, once they're uh, trajectory has been changed. You're coming back, and they're changing the trajectory of, of a lot of other folks. And that's so important. It's, it's a force multiplier effect. So I love this story. We look forward to checking in uh, with you both once again uh, down the road. Hopefully, uh, we're as optimistic as as you are. Uh, we hope to get into this post pandemic, um, you know, time frame as soon as possible, so we can start you know taking some steps back to normalcy. So thanks so much, Jonathan and Trudy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, well. You bet. Big thanks. And, and again, to our audience, uh, abarsoschool.org. We'll make sure that uh, link at a minimum is in the show notes. The episode will make it easy for you to connect with uh, what they're doing there. Um, big thanks to Enrique Alvarez and Monica Rush. Love what Vector's doing. This is just, a, I think this is the ninth installment of this episode. A lot of stories like what Jonathan and Trudy are doing. Enrique, we really enjoyed it. Thank you, Scott. We we love doing this uh, podcast. We love the series, and and we really appreciate everything that you uh, and Greg are doing as well. I mean, it's very very important to to um, let people have a voice. I think that it's important right now. I think it's very very important that we continue having this open uh, communication channels with everyone, especially in supply chain. So, yep. thank you, Scott and Greg, for what you guys are doing. It's great. You bet. Thanks so much, Enrique. Thank you, Monica. Best wishes uh, to where you are in Mexico and appreciate all of your good work as we continue the series. Thanks a lot, Scott. And thanks again, everyone, for being here and for working together with us. That's right. That's what it's all about. All right, Greg, we're going to wrap up this episode here. Love this story. Love love the uh, – it's like practical good news. It's not just good news. It, it's It's action-oriented good news, right? Design thinking in seventh grade. Are you kidding me? I want to send my kids there. <laughs> yes. That is really, really impressive. I don't know if everybody caught that, but I I don't even know what design thinking is completely. But if but imagine go learning about design thinking from the time you are 12 years old to the time you're 18 years old and what you can do with that. Yeah. That is powerful stuff. And you know, the these people are coming back to their country and they're not just changing their lives. They're changing others and they're changing the trajectory, the trajectory of the country as well by lifting up education and lifting up others and joining together as both Jonathan and, and Trudy talked about. So, uh, wow. That's all I got. Well put, well put. And on that note, we're going to wrap with two items. First off, to our listeners, be sure to check out our July 15th free webinar where we're driving a very important dialogue, uh, uh, the state of race industry. We've got a great panel that's going to weigh in on their insights and their experiences. We're going to hear a lot from our global audience like we did last March, and we invite you to, to, to be a part of this frank discussion. Um, where we look just to be, you know, serve as a vessel to, to continue to facilitate some of the some of the tougher discussions that have to be had. July fifteenth around lunchtime. You can learn more about that at supplychainnowradio.com. With all that said, we really ch- uh, challenge you, our audience. Hey, do good, give forward, be the change. And on behalf of Greg White, Scott Luton, the entire team here at Supply Chain Now, we'll see you soon. Thanks, everybody. Mm-hmm.